I really do wake up every day incredibly hopeful about our future in Indian country. We have been through so much. There have been so many attempts to erase us, to destroy us, to take our lands. And we are still here. We're strong. We're one of the youngest and fastest growing populations in the country. Our young people are finding ways to teach language when we thought we'd lose it. There's just so many ways that I find our people are using those lessons that have been handed down through generations to build a new kind of strength for the future. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this podcast season is brought to you in collaboration with the American Board of Internal Medicine. This season will complement their Building Trust Initiative. Our goal is to provide historical context of different disparities and harm, show how it is connected to the inequities that still happen, but also share how changemakers are taking action to ensure that history doesn't continue to repeat itself. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for joining me today to speak about the history, empowerment, and preservation of Native people. So can you share a little bit about your origin story, and what are some of the identities that you have? Sure. It's such a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me on. I grew up in the Seattle area, where my family still is. My mom actually grew up in the Blackfeet Reservation, but her family is from a small reserve up in Canada called the Carry the Kettle First Nation, which are the Nakota people. The reason my mom's family ended up here in the States is because my great-grandfather ran away from his boarding school and ended up in Chicago. Thus, I grew up in the urban Indian community there in Seattle. So that's how I got really involved at a very early age in Indianapolis activism and eventually went to law school. But I also grew up as an out gay man when I was in high school. And a lot of my organizing background is very intersectional with the safe schools movement and the LGBT organizing space too. So those are kind of two of my biggest identities I carry with me. And I've been living here in Washington, D.C. for several years. I've worked in lots of different organizations and government all around tribal law and policy issues. Now I'm working in advocacy to funders to get them to invest as many dollars as they can in our communities. That's awesome. And it sounds like you've been able to take those identities and center the work in your career around that. So can you share with people the top three things that you're most proud of when you look back on your career and the things that you've done? Oh, boy. I think one of them was when I worked at the Department of Education for one of my closest mentors, Kevin Jennings, at the Office of Safe and Drug-Free Schools as a political appointee and had an awesome job. I was a policy advisor on on LGBT issues and American Indian education. So half my time was helping launch the very first federal LGBT youth summit where we brought the Departments of Justice, Health and Human Services and Education together with 300 primarily low-income youth of color from all over the country to talk directly to agency officials about the challenges and opportunities they see as queer youth in their schools. So that was really a powerful moment for me. The other one that really stands with me very deeply is that I spent my early legal career working with tribal courts on domestic violence issues. So really helping victims advocates and tribal court prosecutors around a lot of the challenges that we have with the really horrible rates of domestic violence and reservations. And I had the honor of being able to work for Senator Akaka when he chaired the Indian Affairs Committee in the Senate to co-lead the development of the tribal title of 
the Violence Against Women Act that was the not this past reauthorization, but the one before that. And we actually were able to overturn a piece of Supreme Court precedent that restored the ability of tribal courts to prosecute non-Native offenders of Native women. And we now have, I think, something in the 20 to 30 tribal courts exercising that jurisdiction, which really means a lot to me because you can see the results on the ground, even when you're working on a piece of legislation on the Hill. So those are a couple of them. Having that lasting impact is truly very rewarding, like you said, and being able to see that in action. And I know that you mentioned domestic violence in reservations. And so for people who aren't as familiar with the historical group harms that have happened on reservations and happened to Native people, can you share a little bit about the context. Yeah, I think what's hard for a lot of people to understand, especially if they're not particularly familiar with our communities, is how these historic traumas are interconnected in what you see today, both in the kinds of challenges our communities face, but also a lot of the solutions and how we need to actually tackle those solutions. I go back to just my own great-grandfather's story. He was taken from his family and put forcibly into a boarding school, which is part of a huge system of schools, not just in Canada, but here in the United States, Australia, even parts of Greenland. There was an entire global network of these boarding schools that were specifically intended to remove Indigenous kids from their homes and assimilate them, where he was punished for speaking his own language. And that was just one example of some of the kinds of policies that were put in place where colonizers used these to specifically disrupt our families and to erase our cultures. That was really the goal. And that carries with you generation to generation in a number of different ways. I think one of the things that a lot of people who aren't familiar with our communities and haven't seen groups that deal with these kinds of challenges is just how interconnected intergenerational trauma really is. And if you look at my own connection to it. My great-grandfather did visited that community uh, only a few times after that in his life when he was older because of the trauma that was related there. I never had access to those cultural teachings and other things that are actually known as protective factors, actually, in the health research literature. There's so many different kinds of harm, and we see that over and over again with these kinds of intentional policies. Oftentimes, they overlap. So you have certain people in communities who were still going to some of these boarding schools into the 70s and 80s. And we're also subject to the specific policies that were put in place to take children out of our communities and adopt them into white homes. So you've got literal intergenerational trauma that informs all of our lives and our communities. And that's why so many of the solutions that we're always focused on have to do with rebuilding that culture and reinstating those ways that we should be living in our own communities. Can you define what protective factors are? You mentioned that in the literature. Yeah, I'm not exactly a health expert, but I know what it means in my terms. But, you know, I used to run the Center for Native American Youth and young people are really important to me in the work that I've done over the years. And protective factors are these indicators that you know in a child's life will help intervene against some of the harms and the bad outcomes that can come about in a child's life. So if you look at something like substance abuse, which we have disproportionately high rates of, one of the known protective factors for our young people is connection to culture, because that culture, those lessons, that ability to heal from trauma, Mm. all of these kinds of things are directly connected protective factor in that they actually prevent harm 
and a child's life in the future and improve outcomes. So there's a number of those that are directly related to our culture. In a lot of cases, there's a number of different protective factors around the outdoors and your connection to land. So all of these things together really help create a safer and more supportive environment for young people in both their mental and their physical health. And that directly connects to the recent ruling of the Supreme Court around the Indian Child Welfare Act. So when you were sharing that, it made me think exactly of that. Yeah, it's been a really emotional couple of days since that decision came out last week. As all of us continue to reflect on what just happened, I think we're finally envisioning a different future for our children for once. For so long, we've been defending our kids against the results of these harmful policies that, like I said, have been there to take our families apart and to assimilate us. And what the Supreme Court ruled in reaffirming the Indian Child Welfare Act is that the law that was passed in the 70s stands. And for those of you who don't know who are listening, that law was passed in the late 70s after a movement of Native people and their allies passed a new piece of federal legislation because there was generations of efforts that were out there in conjunction with the government, churches, a number of other institutions to adopt our children out of our families. And I think a lot of other communities have dealt with these kinds of policies, too. If you look at the history of welfare laws in the United States, these efforts to take children away from their families, communities, and cultures are really destructive. And they're especially destructive for those who grow up in those families where those children were disconnected from their cultures. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed to give tribes a very specific legal ability to intervene in cases where our kids are being adopted out of our communities. And for decades, it's actually been seen by the whole child welfare community as the North Star for the whole American child welfare system because it's focused on what's good for our children, those protective factors, and what we should be doing to prioritize kinship care and connection in our communities over some of the really detrimental things the child welfare system has done in the past. I can imagine how emotional, but like you said, hopeful, right? How this is reaffirming and it just allows you to look forward with more hope and positivity for future change that is going to continue to happen. Earlier, you also mentioned about a lot of your work focusing on helping and creating safe spaces for LGBTQ plus youth that are Native. So can you share about some of the different experiences and the challenges and different support systems that are needed for that community as well? Yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on this and working with a lot of our wonderful advocates out in the Two-Spirit and Native LGBT community in building some new resources. But one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand, and it's really connected to what we were just talking about with, with ICWA, is that in so many of our cultures, these identities were seen very different culturally. And so much of what the youth movement in the queer, Native, LGBT, and Two-Spirit community has really been about reconnecting with those traditional teachings and understandings about the role of different kinds of gender identities and sexualities in what used to be. And so that's a lot of what the young people are doing is even interviewing elders who had access to that knowledge before things like the boarding schools came in and completely changed our own way of how we did or didn't accept those kinds of identities. And so I think that's the really exciting part is that there's a growing national movement of local organizations and networks and national networks 
networks that are working alongside a lot of the same advocates who are working on language education and other things to make sure that the role of differently identifying genders are properly part of what we're doing to rebuild a number of our different cultural institutions. Personally, I feel like when I'm doing work that impacts communities that look like me and have similar experiences as I do, the energy that I bring to the work is different, right, than other people who don't have that shared experience. And so for you, can you share how your personal identities and more importantly, how do you bring your values to the work that you do? You know, when you walk into these roles and you're impacting change um, and thinking about your own experiences, how do those inform form your work? I think because I've worked in so many different sectors and on so many different issues, it really gave me an important foundation for the work I do now, which is we work on all sorts of different issues at Native Americans and philanthropy. We really have to be an advocate for funding across everything from education to the environment to child welfare issues. And in order to do that well, I think one of the deepest things that I bring value-wise and have, have carried with me throughout my career is just constantly thinking about and centering community. And I think especially when you're working at a national level, it is really important to be as conscientious as possible about what a tough job it is to advocate for hundreds of different communities across the country, different experiences. The only way you can do that is to really value relationships. Indigenous people really value relationships. We are deeply concerned about how we're related to one another, literally. And I think about that every day in my work because I need to constantly make sure that I'm finding ways that I'm listening to elders, I'm listening to youth leaders, I'm understanding the different experiences from urban Indian um, people and organizations that I work with from those who are out primarily in reservation communities. And only then do I feel like I can move forward with our work in a good way that isn't done in a vacuum or a silo or is taking resources that need to be distributed differently as a national organization. So I think for me, one of the deepest values really is about relationship and listening to community very intentionally. Yeah. And what do you suggest for people who want to develop those relationships, want to figure out how they can be allies and, and work to help amplify and advance the advocacy work that you're doing and that other organizations are doing? How can people really be a part of that that change and, and truly support, even if they, they aren't a part of the community? I think that's one of the most important reasons for national organizations like ours. I That's the kind of work I love to do. This is another one that really draws on my experience in the queer movement and also the Indian organizing is that you need to build those relationships in a meaningful way. And it has to start with education. I think one of the things that we do, particularly at Native Americans and Philanthropy, is to provide as much of that basic education as possible about who Native people are, who, what tribes are, our history, so that those potential funders, whether they're foundations or individual donors, are starting from a different place of understanding and then building those relationships with our community leaders. Too often, funders will come into 
tribal communities and it will be very extractive it becomes sort of a learning a one-way learning adventure for one person and you know people who are running organizations and running governments are not supposed to be spending all their time just teaching you about who they are but that's our Mm -hmm. primary role so you know i really love things like our member education series every month we have dialogues with our community leaders we just had one with native hawaiian leaders most recently we had one on the afro-indigenous experience so that People really have access to these rich and important conversations to better understand those perspectives so that they can then really be on a learning journey rather than just helicopter in and out of communities. And and I think that's important with policy organizations. Any of our national organizations should be thinking about how do we want to invite our allies and partners and champions in who aren't from our communities, but to do that the right way. And that's that's what we do a lot of thinking about every day. When you say that, the number one word that that pops into my mind is 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 respect, you know, and making sure that it is a mutually beneficial relationship. And like you said, that learning is a is a two way street and not coming in with your own agenda, but but respecting and being humble enough to learn and to be guided. Yeah, that's, I, like I think, that. a really good way to put that. And I think that humility value is is extremely important in this. And another way that I know a lot of our relatives and, and partners see it. And, you know, to just build on that a little bit, we do that work the other direction, too. So we actually launched a Native Youth Grant Makers program last year where we actually One of the things I realized is how many youth leaders I've worked with get invited into these philanthropic conversations and it's just extractive and they talk this language that makes no sense. And then the young people wonder, why did I do that? Was this a good use of my time for my community? So now we have a new leadership program where we have a national cohort of diverse youth leaders who are learning about the sector, why their voice matters. They go through a leadership curriculum and then they participate as participatory grant makers in our Native Voices Rising grant making collaborative. So they understand the role of what it's like to be a grant maker, but can now step into those spaces with the confidence and the support that they need to be in a position in those conversations with power that they often aren't. And so that's how we kind of look at, at the other direction, too because oftentimes our people have to be out in those spaces, those hallways of power, and are not always properly supported to do so. So we're always thinking about the sort of holistic way that we're always educating one another across community spaces and experiences. Wow, I love that. And what's the average age of your youth leaders? That program is 18 to 24, and they're nominated also through supporting organizations or or community programs, too. So they've got a a really strong connection to programs that they were probably already doing some other leadership development work in, too. That's awesome. And is there anything else that people should be aware of or should research more on? I know you mentioned the importance of education as well. Yeah, I think just encourage for anyone in your network who's interested in learning more. We have a a range of really fantastic education resources at nativephilanthropy.org, and you can learn more about our membership program. But I think I'd really like to just leave by saying that I really do wake up every day incredibly hopeful about our future in Indian country. We have been through so much. There have been so many attempts to erase us, to destroy us, to take our lands. And we are still here. We're strong. We're one of the youngest and fastest growing populations in the country. Our young people are finding ways to teach language when we thought we'd lose it. There's just so many ways that I find our people are using those lessons that have been handed down through generations to build a new kind 
kind of strength for the future. And especially coming off the heels of this ruling with the Indian Child Welfare Act, it just was an affirmation of those decades of people who have worked to change those harms. And they were really affirmed in a big way. And so it just gives us a lot of energy to keep working with our young people and think about a future that thrives instead of just always thinking about the deficits that we've been dealing with. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.